Go ahead and take out your Bibles. We're in the book of Habakkuk. We're going to look at chapter 2. And while we're turning there, let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and as we um, just glorify you with the praises of our hearts, Father God, let us also glorify you with the obedience of our heart as we turn to your word. Lord, help us to see your word with understanding, Father God. Help us to walk in your word with the, with the faith necessary to carry it out. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's right there. They're, they're finding my remote for me. There's only, there's only so many things we can remember to get ready for, and then the rest we just have to, you know, <laughs> trust the Lord for. So the title of the message today for Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, is Living by Faith. Remember our, our theme, if I had to come up with a theme for the book of Habakkuk, is perplexed faith. It's that idea that we have faith, and that faith may be confusing, and what we're going to see today in Habakkuk chapter 2 is that in that perplexed faith, we have to still live by faith. We may not know everything. We may not understand everything. When you look around what's going on in the world around us, what's going on in you know, people's hearts, what's going on in communities around us, what's going on with people, you, you look at it, it's bewildering and it's perplexing as we see where the world is headed, and then we also have, you know, our faith that says that God is at work in this world, and we look around, and we go, where? What do you mean? And when that happens, we're in the company of Habakkuk. We're in the company of the psalmist of Asaph. You see, when we're perplexed that the wicked seem to be prospering by everything that we can see and the righteous are suffering. And we go, what do you mean God's at work? You see Psalm 73 verse 16, Asaph wrote, when I tried to understand this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. As we open up Habakkuk chapter two, we're gonna see Habakkuk goes to his lookout tower his watchtower, not the magazine. He's not going to the watchtower magazine for answers, okay? Don't go there. But he's going to his lookout tower, his watchtower. And like Asaph, Habakkuk knew that the answer would be seen in the sanctuary of God. His lookout tower was his sanctuary. You all here this morning are in the sanctuary, allowing God to show us what the true future is going to behold. So let's join Habakkuk there. You see, Habakkuk 2.4 tells us that the righteous one will live by his faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. You look around outside at the world and the where, where everything's headed, you're going to become perplexed. You're going to become skeptical of what's going on knowing that God's at work, but we're called to live by faith, 
even when we're perplexed by that faith. So start with me in Habakkuk chapter two, verse one. Habakkuk says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he, God, will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. The Lord answered me, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays an arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol and like death. He is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. Won't all of these take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles about him? They will say, woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? And loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up? Then you'll become spoiled for them. Since you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you. Because of the human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, and all who live in them. Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high to escape the grasp of disaster. You've planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies that the people labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies. For the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes worthless idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. We are going to see as this vision is given to Habakkuk what it is to be living by faith. And the first thing we need to understand about living by faith is faith is patient upon God. We know this, but I believe that the Lord continues to remind us of this because it is the hardest thing for us to continue to wrestle with. Because we, we want a efficient faith. We want a fast faith. We want a faith that instantly uh, is uh, vindicated. 
And so Habakkuk, he says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. Remember, Habakkuk had just gotten the vision from God about what Babylon was going to do to Judah. He's been complaining about Judah and, and crying out for the violence and the injustice of Judah and what they've been committing with their own people. And God says, oh, don't worry, I'll take care of it. I'm going to send Babylon to take care of it. And he goes, wait a minute, they're worse than we are. What do you mean? And so he's perplexed. And I want you to see Habakkuk says he will stand at his guard post and station himself on the lookout tower while he waits to hear from the Lord. Sometimes when we are challenged in our faith, rather than wait on the Lord at our post, we will abandon our post. Say, I don't want to do that. Not until I understand what the Lord is doing. Not until I know what the Lord is doing in my life. But Habakkuk did not abandon his post while waiting for an answer. He maintained his guard post. He, he, that, that place that you fill in ministry while you're waiting for God to answer whatever questions it is that you have, while you're waiting on God to reveal what he's doing, don't abandon where you're serving God. Don't abandon where he's called you to. Maintain your guard post while you wait for an answer. That's what it is to live in faith. And Habakkuk also determined, he determined to position himself in a place where he would obtain the earliest and clearest information. He said, I will be in the lookout tower. I will be in a position like a watchman. He says, I'm going to go wait for the answer, but I want to be in a spot where when I get the answer, because he knew he was a prophet of God and he was supposed to proclaim that answer to the people, said, I'm going to be in a spot where I can get that answer and I can tell it to the people at the earliest time. You think about the watchmen who stood in the tower. They're the ones that called out when they see danger afar off. Habakkuk wanted to gain the Lord's perspective. When we want the Lord's perspective, let us follow Habakkuk. He got alone to hear from the Lord. He needed an answer from the Lord, and he went up into his tower to seek his father. And here's three important components in this verse that I don't want us to miss. I don't believe the Lord wants us to miss. Number one is the determination. Habakkuk needed an answer, and he said, I will stand at my guard post and station myself. He set himself in a place to seek the Lord and hear from the Lord. He didn't say, maybe I should find some time. Or after I'm done with what I'm doing, then I will do it. Or if I have a chance after whatever else happens. You see, the one who seeks the Lord is the one who's determined to hear from the Lord. We seek the Lord when we're determined to hear from the Lord. But if our faith tells us we're not going to hear from the Lord, guess what we're not going to do? We're not going to seek the Lord. We're not, why, why would we seek the Lord if we don't believe we're going to hear from him? But if we truly believed that the Lord would answer us, we would seek him with such determination. But the Lord does promise that the one who seeks him with all their heart will find him. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So often our faith lacks determination. The second component is isolation. Habakkuk got away from everything and went up into a tower. 
He was fleeing all the other distractions to hear clearly from the Lord. He wanted to know what was going on with all the corruption that he saw around him and the answer that the Lord gave about the coming conquest of Babylon. He didn't go out and spend time in the world that he's confused by. He got alone. He got away from the distraction. And that tells us that we oftentimes cannot hear the Lord because we have too much other noise in our ears. Maybe we have the news playing on too much in our ear. Maybe we have the other people that we've been talking with these current events about in our ear. Maybe we have other pastors, other uh, religious leaders, other Christian brothers and sisters in our ear telling us things. And we think it might be from the Lord, but have we heard from the Lord? If you want to hear from God, there is no greater alternative than a quiet time in a quiet place with a quiet heart. That means turn off the phone, shut off the tablet, turn off the TV, and yes, even turn off the radio or anything else that would seek to fill that space with noise when you want to hear from the Lord. Because one thing that I found in all of my reading in scripture and all of my times with the Lord is the Lord always comes with a still, small voice. The third component would be expectation. We see Habakkuk and his expectation is that the Lord will speak to him. He watched expectantly. He was waiting to see what the Lord will say to him. He didn't say, man, I really hope God speaks to me. He didn't say, I wish God would speak to me. He said, I want to see what the Lord will say to me. We need to have that faith that says, God will speak to me. Now, Many of us are waiting for God to speak in an audible voice that booms out of the clouds and whatnot. That's not how he speaks. He's going to speak to us through the implication of his spirit in our heart that he's given us when we gave our faith, when we gave our life and faith to Christ, he filled us with his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit speaks directly to our heart. And then he also uses his word, his full revelation that he's given to us. As we seek him in his word, he will speak to us. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. The one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. That's what it is to approach God in faith, is not only to know that he's there, but that he rewards those who seek him. So we come to him and we say, if I spend time and I wait to hear from God. He will reward that because he will speak to me. Only by faith can we please God. And if you don't believe by faith that God is going to speak to you, you will not hear anything from God. How do you have faith that God will speak to you and answer you? When you go and seek God in your quiet place during a quiet time with a quiet heart, do you bring pen and paper? to write down what he might say to you? Are you on the edge of your seat 
wondering what he's going to speak to you this time? Or do we go into our quiet time like, oh, this is a waste of time. And I'm going to, there's so much more productive things that I could be doing. May we all be, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't always go there on the edge of my seat expecting the Lord to speak something great to me, but I should. We all should, because that is our God. Let us approach him in our quiet time on the edge of our seat going, man, God of the universe has said that if we seek him with all our heart, we will find him. And as he speaks to us, the second part about living by faith is faith believes God's word. When we read God's word and God reveals himself to us, do we believe it? You see, in God's word, he's promised that he's going to set all things right. That there's coming a time in which all the wickedness, all the injustice, all the oppression of the world is gonna be done away with. But do we believe that when we look outside and we see what it looks like for evil to seem to be prospering while righteousness is being pressed down? Do we still believe that Christ is coming? That Christ is coming to set it right again? Do we believe God when he says, the righteous I will lift up and the wicked I will put down? I feel like I'm living righteously for you, God, but like, why do I suffer? Why am I not being put up? Do we trust him in that? Habakkuk chapter two, verse two, it says, the Lord answered me. He said, write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Habakkuk declares that the Lord, in fact, did answer him. He had no question that it was the Lord who answered him. And in the answer that the Lord gave Habakkuk, there are two truths that come about about God's answer. The first is God gave clear revelation. And that is his desire for revelation. He desires the revelation to be clear. The Lord wants and desires for the vision given to Habakkuk. He says, clearly inscribe it on the tablets. And here's two reasons. Because it's to be kept and shared. And then it's also for the one with whom it's shared. It will be clearly and easily understood. You know, that's why we have God's word, because he wants us to understand it. He wants us to have it and he wants us to understand it. He has perfectly preserved his word through many people trying to destroy it at different times throughout history. And each and every time God's word has prevailed because God has protected his word because he wants it clearly and easily understood by those who hear it and see it. The writing is also to be permanent so that generation after generation can read it. The writing is to be clear and plainly written so anybody can read it. It's to be public so that everybody, even those passing by, would get the message immediately. Habakkuk wasn't the only one who needed this message. He was commissioned to share it. And we wouldn't even be reading the book of Habakkuk this morning if he didn't obey God in that. 
When you behold the glory of God, you will believe the word of God. And that will give you the faith to accept the will of God. You see, Paul teaches us in the New Testament that faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of God. You say, how do I get faith? Hear the word of God. The second truth is that God gave certain revelation. Not not just distinct revelation, but he gave a revelation that was certain. The revelation was yet for the appointed time, but it was also for a future time, about a future time. It testifies about the end, and he says it will not lie. It won't be proven false. It will come about because it is certain. Notice what he says. He says, though it delays, wait for it, because it will certainly come and not be late. Wait a minute. It just said that it delays. Yeah, it does delay, but that doesn't mean it's late. It just means it's not coming on our timetable. It won't happen immediately, but don't go away. Don't grow weary. Don't go away thinking that it's not going to happen. Don't be caught off guard because it will happen. Wait for it. The idea behind the words, wait for it, wait for it with eager anticipation, that same on the edge of your seat anticipation, wait for God's word to be fulfilled. It's certainly coming. And though it delays, know this, it's on time. It's never late. The vision is coming at its appointed time. Not early, not late, exactly at its appointed time. The immediate application, of course, is the end of the Babylonian captivity, which through the writings of Daniel, they they, uh, realized was 70 years. That had a specific appointed time, but the writer of Hebrews interprets it now to refer also to the return of Christ in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted the joy, the confiscation of your possessions, because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, For you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised in verse 37, quotes Habakkuk. For yet in a very little while, and he changes it. Notice notice that he puts the coming one in here. The coming one will come and not delay. It's not the end anymore. It's the coming one. You know why? Because the coming one brings with him the end. That's why we call it the end times. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. Peter writes, above all, beware of this. Scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they'll say, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. Is this not what we hear? Christ has been promising to come back for 2,000 years. Where is he? He's not coming back. You guys are all crazy. Well, God is not slack concerning his promises. Some consider slackness, but he is long-suffering and willing that no one would perish, but all would come to repentance because we live in a time period 
known as the day of salvation. This is the grace and the mercy of God before the judgment of God comes. God tells us to wait for it. God says, it will happen. The Lord will come and deliver. Wait for him with expectation. His revelation is clear. His revelation is certain. And here's the crux of it. Righteous live by faith. Verse four and five, it says, look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. See, God reveals to Habakkuk that because the king of Babylon was lifted with pride and ego, he would surely not survive as the righteous do. God's summary of the king and his conceited character is that he's puffed up like a bloated toad, inflated with evil passions, and they are without integrity. They are not upright. Yahweh then declares the stark contrast of a righteous person. It's marked with a distinction. They don't live by their appetites. They don't live by their sight. They live by faith. A righteous one who remained loyal and faithful to God and his moral precepts was humble before the Lord, would enjoy God's abundant life. The believing righteous, in other words, needs to stick to their guns. When trouble comes, that's not the time to abandon our faith in God. Oh no, trouble's coming and uh, God said that the righteous one would live by faith and I don't feel like I'm living the abundant life, and so therefore I'm going to abandon it. No, we need to stick to their guns. Literal rendering is by his faith, the just shall live. You see, that's the promise of God. What did Jesus say? He who believes in me shall live. Even though he dies, yet he will live. That's the same promise here. The righteous shall live. It has the eternal sense. Paraphrase, the justified one by faith shall live. Or the justified by faith one shall live. This verse out of Habakkuk is actually quoted three separate times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul in Romans is stressing what it means to be righteous. Righteousness is imparted through faith. We don't earn it. It's given the moment we believe. Galatians 3.11 says, Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. And what Paul is saying here is that the justified are not justified by the law. They're not justified because they're perfect. Justification is by faith. And then in Hebrews, we saw 
in Hebrews 10.38, but my righteous one. He's saying my righteous people, my righteous children, those who are considered righteous by my standards will live by faith. And if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. What that means is the faith will endure. The righteous one shall live by faith. Bible teacher Stedman says, it's interesting that in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, it's kind of a divine commentary on this one verse of Habakkuk. Romans stresses what it is to be righteous, and we're told that the righteousness of Christ is imparted to us by the gift of God. Righteousness is handed to us. We don't have to earn it. We have it the minute we believe. Then the words shall live, they're interpreted as you think of chapter five of Galatians, the great chapter on the life and the spirit. What does it mean to live? It means to walk in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. And then the words by faith as interpreted in Hebrews, the great letter on faith. What does it mean to have faith? It means to trust that the invisible God is working despite present appearances. We are called to live by faith and nothing else. We're not called to live by devotions. We're not called to live by works. We're not called to live by our feelings. And we are certainly not called to live by our circumstances. For we walk by faith, not by sight. And Hebrews 11 tells us faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. See, our faith is the hope that Christ is coming back. Our faith is the hope that in Christ we have eternal life. We live according to that and we are living by faith. Bible teacher John MacArthur says the emphasis in both Habakkuk and the New Testament references goes beyond the act of faith to include the continuity of faith. Faith is not a one-time act, but a way of life. The true believer, declared righteous by God, will persevere in faith as the pattern of his life. See, the contrast the Lord gives here is a people who live by faith in God and his word as opposed to those who arrogantly live by themselves without God. You see, the Babylonians, they're not the only ones puffed up with pride and self-sufficiency. It's epidemic of our time as well. They're deceived. They're discontent through wine and strong drink. How many people use strong drink to change how they feel about where they are. They're devoted to greed and covetousness. How often have we seen people chase after the things of this world, the coveting of this world at the expense of their faith? They're driven by ambition and a lust for conquest. The next greatest thing to conquer, the ambition. I want to get to the top. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get to the top. 
Verses 6 through 20 is a series of woes pronounced by Habakkuk. And the way that I want us to see these, they're not only woe-inducing acts, but they're faith-preventing also. And we need to see our similarities in pursuing some of these things because what it does is when we pursue these things, when we chase after these things, when we follow in these same sins, it actually prevents from walking in faith. Habakkuk says in verse 6, Won't all of these take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles about him? They will say, Woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? And loads himself with goods taken and pledged. Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up? Then you'll become spoiled for them. Since you've plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high to escape the grasp of disaster. You've planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies that the people labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with the disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, and all who live in them. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies, for the one who crafts its shape, trusts in it, and makes worthless idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be played with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. See, the Lord proclaims to Habakkuk five woes concerning the sins of Babylon. And these sins are going to be judged by God. He's saying that already. And these sins, when practiced, as I said, are faith-preventing. Those who live according to these sins cannot live by faith and are not righteous and will perish. The first, it, it, it's divided up into a series of three verses for each woe. The first one is, Endless appetite. Woe is pronounced to him who amasses what is not his. The Babylonians are consumed with having it all. They want the wealth. They want the territory. They want the reputation. And so they hoarded and they stole and they plundered from helpless people. They had them pledge silver and gold for their protection. And yet when it came time for that protection, they didn't give it to them. Babylon plundered. And God declared, because you have plundered, you shall be plundered. And that reminds us what God has always said, that he is not mocked. That which a man sows, he will also reap. The endless appetite prevents living by faith because it's never satisfied. 
with what it has or what it's been provided. You see, one with an endless appetite is more concerned with what they want than what God wants. The second woe is ill-gotten gains. The woe is pronounced, woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house. You know there's three ways to get wealth. You can work for it, you can steal it, or you can receive it as a gift. The Babylonians stole it. Many people in seeking after wealth start saying the ends justify the means, or that's just how business is done. And they don't care about what God has declared as righteous and what's not righteous. It's that's how business is done. And if you want to survive in this world, that's what you got to do. But here's why the Babylonians did that. And maybe we can kind of connect it with where our heart is at. The goal of the Babylonians was security. Who doesn't want financial security? That's what it meant, the nest on high to escape disaster. The Babylonians exploited people to build an empire that would promise them security. Sometimes we do the same thing. We build our own kingdom and our own empire because of the promise of security. Oh, then I don't have to worry about anything. Then I won't have any problems. Then, you know, then I can give to the Lord like I want to give to the Lord. It's faith preventing because we exploit to find security through something other than God. Ill-gotten gains are made without faith in God. We need to know that whatever security man builds without God will never last. The Babylonians built a great empire thinking that was their security, and they crumbled. Mark 8, 36, Jesus said, what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? The next one kind of goes along with it. It's kingdom building. The woe is pronounced, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. People labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing. If you, if you have ever read uh, Ecclesiastes, it's the same sense of futility. We, we, we struggle and we strive and we do everything that we can to build these things, build a company, to build a family, to build a legacy, to build an inheritance. But in the end, it doesn't matter. King Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, the one who's built something great has to hand it off to someone who doesn't deserve it, who didn't build for it, who's probably going to waste it. Look at all the great companies that started about 100 years ago in the early 1900s. It's on its third generation now. Where are they at? Are their values still the same? Are they still the same company? Now it's been said, most companies when they're handed off, most inheritance when they're handed off, they won't make it through the third generation. Kingdom building is when we're not building his kingdom, 
but man's kingdom or our kingdom. Seeking to establish our own glory over his glory. And it's faith preventing because we're seeking to set ourselves higher than God's kingdom. And there is one who said, I will be like the most high. And you can almost hear it in his voice that he said, I will be higher than God. It's purely satanic. And building any kingdom other than God's kingdom is futile because only his kingdom is eternal. In, in all of scripture, it always says that all of the kingdoms of man are going to end when God establishes his kingdom and it will be there forever and ever. The last, I believe it's the last woe, uh, fourth woe, excessive debauchery. Excessive debauchery. Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath, and making them drunk, pouring out your venom and making them, pouring out your poison upon them in order to look at their nakedness. This is the sin of indulging in sensual pleasure, pleasure of the flesh and body, drinking, drugs, sexual immorality. This is pairing of intoxicated sexual impurity and deviant behavior. Seduction mixed with perversion. There's been examples of this all throughout history, even since the ancient world. In Genesis 9.21, it talks about Noah. When Noah drank some of the wine and became drunk, he uncovered himself inside his tent. But here's where it comes in. It's not what Noah did. What did his son do? Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside, kind of like, hey, come check out this crazy guy. Let's laugh at his nakedness. Let's take in and enjoy what is shameful. Because of this, Noah pronounced a curse upon Canaan. Remember the land that the Israelites inherit? The land of Canaan, of the Canaanites. But then also in Genesis 19, what we see with Lot, Lot's daughters. Lot's daughters said, come, let us get our father to drink wine so we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. They were upset because they had no husbands, they had no children. And if I remember correctly, the children born to these daughters from this act is the Moabites and the Amalekites. Two thorns in the side of Israel. This is faith preventing because seduction is viewed as power over love. And here's what God teaches us through his word. There is no power over love. There is a great power in selfless love. And there's no love that does not come from God. Because God is love and we know love because God loved us first. And so anything that we do to try and gain power and we try to do, and, and, and we're thinking in 
worldly terms of love, it's not love because God is love and love without God is not love at all. This is what Paul was talking on in the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. He said, if I speak with human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so I can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all my possessions and I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And what he's saying is, it doesn't matter how great of things I do, Without love, it's nothing. Love without God is not love at all. And the final woe is the woe of idolatry. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up, or to mute stone, come alive. I love the question asked here. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it. It's very similar to what Isaiah asked in his book, where he says, they carved it with their images. They gave it eyes, but it can't see. They gave it ears, but it can't hear. They gave it the, the look of a being, but it can't breathe. It's not alive. And then they come and they bow down before it, like, but they're the ones that created it. How ridiculous. It's an image it's a teacher of lies. And the one who crafts it and trusts it, that's where the woe is pronounced. Those who craft an idol and then trust that idol, woe to them. Worthless idols that cannot speak. It's faith preventing because anything that is an idol takes away our loyalty to the Lord, the true and living God, and it gives it to a worthless item. What is idolatry? I don't think you'll find a better definition for idolatry than what Paul said in Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator. That's idolatry. Idolatry substitutes the living God for a lie. And you say, so what's an idol? Many things, many idols abound. Because here's what an idol is, practically speaking. Anything that seeks to divide or take our loyalty from God. Your marriage can be an idol. Your kids can be an idol. Your job can be an idol. Your hobbies can be an idol. The money that you make can be an idol. Your security can be an idol. Your health can be an idol. You get it? Anything that takes our trust out of God and puts it in anything else, anything that takes our love out of God and puts it in anything else above him, that's an idol. And those are woes for those who live according to those, because those are all faith preventing. Those are all saying, God, I don't trust what you've given me. God, I don't like what you've given me. God, I'm going to seek mine own. I'm going to fill my own satisfaction. And for anybody that's ever done that, anybody that's ever sought that, all of us before Christ can attest to this. 
It's all lies because it promises to satisfy and it never does. The only thing that has ever truly satisfied is faith in God himself. But God did end his vision with Habakkuk with the assurance of faith. Here's the assurance of faith. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. When you look out and you see things that aren't right, the Lord's in his temple. He hasn't been usurped. When something happens in your life and you don't understand it, the Lord is in his temple. It didn't catch him by surprise. We have to start to understand that the situations and things happening around us, somehow or another, God has ordained and allowed it to happen. God has ordained and allowed it to happen in our life. But that doesn't mean he's not on the throne anymore. In fact, the promise, because God is on his throne, is that he takes those things and he uses them in our life. That's what it means in the promise of Romans 8, 28. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his love and purpose. The Lord assures Habakkuk that he's indeed in his temple. God is on his throne. No evil will be overlooked. No evil will go unpunished forever. Everything is and remains under control. That's the assurance of faith. We don't have to complain against God. We don't have to question him and what he's doing. We simply stand and listen in his presence. And it reminds me of what the psalmist says in Psalm 4610. Stop fighting and know that I am God, exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. Another translation of that is, be still and know that I'm God. A literal translation of that is, shut up and know that I'm God. (laughs) Be still. Stop resisting. The things that happen in our life, don't resist against God. Live in faith to God. Habakkuk 2.4, his ego is inflated, but he's without integrity. But the righteous one, will live by his faith. God isn't saying you should live by faith. God isn't saying I want you to live by faith. God is saying the righteous will live by faith. We may not always have explanations. We will not always have answers to our questions. We won't have solutions to our problems. You're not called to live through figuring it all out. You're not called to live by seeing it all happen. You're not called even to live feeling how it will all go. You're called to be living by faith in God. That means even when you don't know what God is doing, how he's at work, where he's leading, or even why he's leading you there because we live by faith, the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not yet seen. And John in his epistle tells us, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. And here's the victory that's conquered the world, 
our faith. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know what it is to live in faith because you haven't made that first step of faith. That first step that conquers the world is our faith in Jesus. In the next verse, John says, who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It takes our faith of believing Jesus is who Jesus said he was, Jesus did what Jesus said he would do, and that Jesus is going to come back just as he said he would for us. If you believe that, John says you've overcome the world. Jesus said, he who believes in me has life. He who does not believe in me does not have life. And John repeats this in his epistle. He says, the one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have life. I've written these things to you so that you will believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, the just shall live by faith. You have life by faith in Christ. Hold on to that faith no matter what. Don't ever give up that faith for anything. Continue to hold on to that faith because the just shall live by faith. No matter what happens to you in your life, no matter what happens to you in your family, no matter what happens to you at your job or what happens in this country or politically or any of that. The truth is one day all this is going to be gone. But eternity will be here. And the one who has faith has eternal life in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, and we thank you so much. We thank you so much for your prophet Habakkuk, who has all the same questions that we struggle with, Father. And Lord, as we struggle with these, help us to um, pay attention here and understand that you have declared that the just shall live by faith, Father God. We don't have to worry if we're going to survive. We don't have to worry if we're going to have that eternal life, because you've promised it. The just shall live by faith. Help us to live in faith, Father God. Help us to trust in you for the things that we have, the things that we don't have, the things that we want to have. Help us to to trust all of it to you, Father God. That way we don't seek anything outside your will. We don't seek anything outside your favor. And then, Lord, I also pray that you would help us to, to seek you by faith, Father God. Help us to have that quiet place for a quiet time with a quiet heart where we're determined to seek you. We know that you'll speak to us, Father God. We expect it. And then, Lord, that we would trust and live by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.